0: I want to invite you now to Matthew chapter 16. I want to invite you to open the Bible together with us in Matthew chapter 16 as we begin what I hope will be for the next three weeks, uh, an important and pivotal time where we begin to think about what the Bible says about how we ought to relate to this thing called the church. So if you don't have a Bible or if you don't maybe have access to a Bible, maybe you don't have a smartphone, we want to give you one. And so if you'd do me a favor and just raise your hand and kind of slip that up and hold that there for just a moment, uh, one of our ushers is going to put one in your hands. Uh, We would love to even make that our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, would you please take that? You can't steal it. We're giving it away. And if you know someone who doesn't, own a Bible. Would you do us a favor and even take one and and give it to them? You can't steal it. We want to put this Bible into people's hands. And and this is an important thing for us. This is a a highly symbolic and meaningful thing for us that we don't just simply sit back and let someone kind of pontificate or pretend like they're the expert on the room uh, with respect to the Bible, but instead this is something that corporately shapes us. We participate in this thing that, that God does, and an amazing thing happens that we talk about on a regular basis. Uh, one of our dead heroes, Charles Spurgeon, that when we open the Bible, miraculously, it begins to open us. When we begin to expose what's in the Bible, it begins by the power of God's Spirit and His presence begins to expose what is in us. And so we do this together as, as a group, and I want to do that with you together today. Spending the beginning of our time in Matthew chapter 16... Turning the page to Matthew chapter 18 and then spending the rest of our time doing something a little bit different um, so, that, so that today will serve as, as maybe just a, a marker so that going forward if anyone asks what does it look like to belong or to be a member of the body of Christ and a member, uh, a part of the body of Connection Church, we want this to be one of three different installments that we can refer back to as a, as a biblical model, a biblical framework for understanding where the church comes from, what it is Define it clearly as best we can and then begin to pray that God would allow us to look like this in the future. So beginning in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he that is Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of I will give you the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We believe that this book, when it's opened and spoken and expounded upon, becomes more than just ink on a page but it becomes the word of God For God's people. So would you join me just briefly as we pray for our time together? Would you pray that that I would speak clearly and that it would make sense? And would you pray that that by some mysterious work of God's spirit, he would begin to speak to you and to me? Uh, God, we thank you for this time. We set it aside. We consecrate it. We we lay it aside to, to be for this purpose, that you would be glorified, that our attention and our focus would be directed toward you and you alone uh, that the burdens we now carry we would cast upon you knowing that you care for us and you carry them away from us. Would we begin to lay aside any distraction, any sort of thoughts? Would we begin to lay aside any preconceived notion that that isn't rooted firmly into to y- in your character and your nature and your work in Jesus Christ and the revelation of your principles, statutes and guidance and love for us in the Scripture? Be glorified in all that is said and done. May the meditations of our own hearts and may the words of our own mouths be pleasing to you. Only you can do this. Amen. Jesus invents the church. It's his idea. It's his fulfillment. And I want to show you that the New Testament is all about the church. The New Testament is a book that is all about the church. The New Testament is... Impossible to understand. It is impossible to have any meaning without a picture of the church. And Jesus in this passage gives the first that we're aware of an image, a a prophecy if you will, a a guiding word. A word about the future when he mentions for the first time here in the New Testament the church. The first mention of this idea of the church we see beginning and kind of the two-thirds of the way through this passage that I just read to you. After the declaration of who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, we find that Jesus in verse 18 says that he's going to do something with his followers and he's going to build upon his followers his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will be the thing that survives past all other things. So let's begin to define this word. Let's begin to, I hope, think about what this means for us. And I'm asking you Toward the end of our time and building up through three weeks from now, I'm asking you to consider submitting yourself to Christ, and I'm asking you to submit yourself to His church. Whether this is the church to which God has called you to belong, or if there was another church, I'm asking you to submit to Jesus, and I'm asking you to submit to His church. And at the end of these three weeks, I want to meet with you, talk about this. After three weeks, we're going to get together and speak through this, but today I want to start from scratch, and I want to assume that you do not think that the church is a good thing. I want to assume that you are against being a part of the church. I want to assume that so that we can start from scratch, and we can define clearly the terms that Jesus dictates for us as we understand the church, and then we can identify piece by piece the obstacles that exist in our own hearts, and our own culture, and our own world, to being obedient to this. The obstacles that exist that will make what Jesus commands us to do and to be, what Jesus casts as a vision for us to look like, those obstacles exist as a barrier for these things to come to reality. And hopefully that will make it clear. If we start from scratch, scratch, I think it'll do two important things. The first is that it will give you in this room who may be skeptical of Jesus and the church a chance to see this for what it really is and, and kind of see what the Bible says about this and, and as maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus and I'm I'm incredibly, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad maybe somebody like drug you here against your will but I'm glad you're here because I want you to maybe sit in on this talk maybe as a as an eavesdropper and hear what we believe God has called us to be and I want you to hold us to that. I want you to really hear on, on its own merits what it is that we believe as the church and what we believe that God has called us to be and to look like as a church. So I'm glad you're here. The second thing that I think this will do, it will allow the rest of you, that maybe you, you, you know what the church is and you, you think you understand, it will, it will allow us to start from scratch and dig up all of the unbiblical stuff that's piled into your brain with respect to the church. All the unbiblical nonsense that you've kind of swallowed along the way that, that people would believe is or is not the church. I want to maybe dig, dig up underneath that and start from scratch and, and define these terms clearly. I want you to throw out any previous definitions of church. You really have to completely, absolutely dispense of any previous definition of the word church to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Beginning in verse 13, he says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, stop there, that's a Gentile territory for this highly religious group of people and and a a, a Jewish man like Jesus to to have stepped into unknown territory to a place where most people weren't necessarily welcome. We're already in an an interesting and beautiful picture of the life of the church. It's it's the people of God set aside for the purpose of God in the place that doesn't look or act like God. Uh, It's the godliness made visible in and amongst the outcasts, in amongst the darkest and most desperate places. This is where Jesus starts this conversation, introduces us to the church. He says he asks the disciples, one of the most important questions, it is the foundation of the church, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So I can't go too far into depth, but this phrase, Son of Man, has a ton of biblical baggage and insight with it. It's, it's a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel, the prophecy that Daniel gave. Of what it would look like when God establishes his kingdom that has no end here on the earth. He he says that one day a son of man and and by by son of man it simply means like the human one, right? The the one that appears and is in the nature of a human being. Right? The right The, the son of a duck would be a duck, right? The the son of a man would be a human right this is this is a picture that that Daniel gives of this coming glory of God uh, the kingdom of God made manifest on the earth he's going to come in on the clouds and he's going to establish a kingdom a kingdom that will last out, outlast all other kingdoms a kingdom that will that will have a a beautiful and perfect king and all of the other nations will bow down to this king this is a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled we believe in jesus christ and he asks his followers he asks you and he asks me when the kingdom of god comes who is that going to who is that king going to be and they said some say it's john the baptist this was a prophet who'd just been beheaded for pointing to jesus and and for pointing to godliness Others say Elijah. This is a prophet who again speaks to God's people about God's restoration of his people and his kingdom on the earth. Some say Jeremiah in verse 14. Or one of the other prophets. Maybe the Son of Man will be like a, a reincarnation, a resurrection of, of one of the prophets. They will come back and while they spoke with power and worked miracles in the power of God, one day they're going to come back and, and that will be the Son of Man. That's what Daniel was talking about. And Jesus turns instead of asking only who the Son of Man is, He he connects the dots for them and He asks a different question in verse 15 and He says, who do you say that I am? He connects the dots for them. Uh, You need to know what God's kingdom will look like and how it will outlast all other kingdoms. You need to think about what God will do and how He will do that. But He says to His disciples, now that you're thinking about what God's new kingdom is going to look like, Who do you think I am? Simon Peter. He replies, you are the Christ. That word Christ would have been the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the one that God had sent to restore and redeem his people. You are the Christ. You are, remember, there's a a son of man. Daniel prophesies that will be a human, but he says, you, Jesus, you're the son of the living God. You got to stop right there. this is it if, if you if you don 't hear anything else, the people of God, the Church of God, is the community of God who really believe that He is alive and well and that he has acted definitively and completely and sufficiently on our behalf in Jesus Christ that's who we are that this is where it starts, and we believe that he is a Son of man, he has come to be with us not not as a not as simply a stranger, a, a nebulous force up there and out there, but God is now with us and for us and among us in the form of us, such that Hebrews tells us now we have a high priest that isn't, isn't unable to, to sympathize with us, but instead he came to be like us and with us, so that if we ever were to ask, what is God like? We look at Jesus and we say, that's what God is like. But it says here also that he is not only a son of humans, but he is also in some miraculous and mysterious form the son of a living God. He's not just a person. He's God with us, for us, among us. This is what we believe. Verse 17 says that Jesus responds to Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Here's the second thing we believe. It says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is important because this is illustrated for us in the next couple of verses especially in the word church. You've got to get this is bigger, uh, dig up all of the baggage you have about the word church and begin to think about this. The people who know who Jesus is don't know it by flesh and blood, according to Jesus. They know it by the work and the will of the Father, the living God. So the people who know who Jesus is aren't aware of who Jesus is. They have their eyes open to who Jesus is by flesh and blood. That is, there's not some natural tendency that leads us toward jesus christ no one is naturally predisposed to love and cherish and follow jesus christ jesus lays down his life for the sake of his people our natural inclination is to lay other people down for the sake of our own joy comfort and glory but jesus lays aside his own comfort his own glory and his own rightful honor and he lays it all aside to save his people it's a strange kingdom a kingdom that's upside down this king as we like to say, doesn't send his people in front as an army to die for this kingdom. This king runs in front of the army and he lays down his life so that none of the people in his kingdom will feel the eternal punishment of death. This, this is a new king, a new kingdom. It's upside down. This is what Jesus is for us. This is what he has done for us. When you know this, when you see this, it is not because someone naturally is predisposed to believe this. This idea, I was born into a Christian family. I was born into this well maybe you're born into a context in which people pointed you to Jesus but your natural inclination watch any one two or three-year-old is me 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 I want why I don't like why I am not happy your natural inclination is for yourself it is for your joy for your pleasure for your honor and if you could if you had the power to do it you would allow everyone else to bow to you and to your whims for your will and your own glory that's you, that's me, that's our natural inclination. To consider the possibility that the reality of the world is built around a God who doesn't do that like we would, but instead sends his own son to take our place, lays down his own will, his own desire, his own pleasure, his own comfort for the sake of us, is a radical, supernatural thing. It is not flesh and blood that points us to service. It is not flesh and blood that points us to lay down our lives. It is the supernatural work of God in Jesus. God does this. He's the one who sent Jesus. He's the one who emptied the wealth of heaven to demonstrate his love for us. And in verse 18, it says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. Now, he has a little play with words. He calls him a name, Kaphos, and it just simply means rock. Now, we know his name is Simon, but but the, one of the trends throughout the entirety of the Bible is that when God enters, uh, people change, right? When When God does something, the People's identity is radically reoriented toward what God has done. This goes even from the very beginning. A man named Abram or Abram was called as the first Jew. The first Jew was a Gentile, but by God's purpose and God's calling, he becomes Abraham, the father of a nation. This is what God does when every time he comes in, he gives people a new name, a new identity. This is a big deal for us as the church. We believe that God dictates our identity, and Jesus does this in a little play on words. And he goes, you, Simon Peter, rock, you're going to be the rock that my church is built upon. And he introduces a word, this word ecclesia, Ekklesia. This is interesting for us because the ecclesia is a collection of two different words. It shows up 115 different times in the New Testament. And it's a collection of two different words. Ek, which is a prefix. Ek, out. Right? Like explode, blows out. Right? Ex, ex, you know, Expound. That means to deliver out or, or unfold or unpack. This is the ex we, we think about out. And then the second part of this word, ekklesia, this word translated church, is the word klesos or kletos, which simply means to call. Now this would have been a word they would have understood. In fact, this word usually is translated outside of the Bible, the word gathering or assembly. The most common use that we find outside of the Bible implies that this word ekklesia, and this is going to hurt, especially in light of the last couple of weeks, um, This word implies the word, like we would use the word Congress. By the way that we think about Congress, someone who is set aside to represent people is set aside for a particular purpose. And, And when the Congress is in session, these people would have known this phrase ecclesia, this assembly, the same way we think about a Congress assembling together for the purpose of the good of the people and the good of that kingdom, that, that government, right? This is what they would have understood. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to start something, and, and I'm going to build it on the work that I pass on to you, Peter. The, the work that I pass on to my apostles is going to start something. And and the same way that that a congressperson is elected or chosen or appointed to represent people for a greater purpose, they are are called out of the people to stand up in a way of the people to, to lead and represent them and to point them towards something greater. So also Jesus says here, I'm going to start something. I'm going to call you out of the world for another purpose. I'm going to call you together to be united in me to exist for a purpose that is above and beyond. It's going to be greater. And this is what God is building. This word, ekklesia, it became translated about a few centuries later after the Roman government made Christianity its official religion, then the word got retranslated into something else that simply means kind of like a word uh, set apart or sanctuary. And centuries later, it got kind of abbreviated, shortened down across different Western Languages to the point where on other side of the pond, they would call the church a kirk. And to where now, in English language, we call it a church. And we usually use that word with respect to a building, a place. I've got to dig up underneath that because that is the worst way to think about what Jesus is introducing. If you think about just some old building, even if it's beautiful, even if it's got spires and stained glass and it reaches to the sky and gives you almost a feeling of transcendence right even if that's the case that is the worst possible metaphor that is the worst possible picture that can come to your mind when you think about what god has called us to be in jesus christ he says something that you now know about jesus he's the son of the living god in us for us and among us on our behalf it will start a movement of of people called out this people this thing and you've got to get this the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Implying that everything else, everything else that exists, whether it's buildings, organizations, you name it, ultimately will burn. Ultimately they will fall apart. Either time, weather, you name it, will destroy it. And if it doesn't, then the judgment of God over it will consume it. Save one thing. The church, the people called out of the world according to His good purposes, the people called out not by flesh and blood, by good ideas, but by the work of God the Father. So much so that it gives us like this picture. You, this is like strong words, right? The gates of hell. Uh oh! I thought we were. I thought this was all fun. The gates of hell are coming after the world. Yes, the gates of hell are are the enemy is against the world and destroying things, yes, but but all of those things will succumb to the work of the enemy except for the church, the people who know who Jesus is and see him as the son of the living God, the redeeming and saving one, the kingdom creator, the the new creation inspired in his person and work and his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. We see the seeds planted of this new thing and everything else will fall away but this thing. So much, though, that this church now has authority. He says to the apostles, whatever you declare here will be bound in heaven. So if you, if, you, if you bind or tie something up here, that is, if you declare some truth and connect a dot here, it also is true in heaven. If you, if you let loose here, then it will be loosed in heaven. As if to say that what God is doing In the supernatural realm of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, he is making visible in the church. Such that what happens in the life of the church is emblematic of what happens in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom that will never pass away. And what we see in the church is a glimpse, it is a a catalyst for us to understand what God is doing in eternity. So here's how this looks. I want to walk through some of these pieces together. I want to begin to think about what the church is as we define this word, the people that are called out. This is what I think we'll see. And I want to run through this the best I can. The church is made up of born-again disciples of Jesus that are united with Christ and with other followers of Jesus universally, that is all Christ followers globally across all time and space and locally, all Christ followers incorporated to a particular local congregation. The church is made up of the people who see Jesus, and if your eyes are opened to who Jesus is, that he is the son of man bringing a new kingdom that will never pass away, then our eyes are opened that he is also the son of God. This is transformative for us. When you know that Jesus is king, and his word is law, and his word is good, it changes everything, and it transforms us from the inside out. The the Bible calls this, as Jesus speaks to another person who asks about this kind of thing, being born again. You were naturally born into a selfless state or selfish state. You were naturally born uh, wanting things for your own self. You were naturally born into a family, into a place, into a country, into a citizenship. But now that our eyes are open to Jesus, we are born again supernaturally to a new family, a new community, a new kingdom, a new purpose, a new eternity. So we are born again. Our eyes are open such that now we are followers. We find our identity in Christ And we are now wrapped up, our identity and all, in our union with Christ. We are one with Christ, such that now the body of Christ is spoken not only of Jesus' physical body that was killed and hung on a cross on our behalf, but the body, namely the church, of Jesus Christ. So just see what we see in this text here. Step one is to realize that Jesus Christ invented the church. It's his idea. He, He starts the prophetic movement of the life of the church. It's not some just created idea of human beings. I know sometimes it looks that way. I know we have good skeptical reasons for, for believing that it could be corrupt, it can be awful. History has, has taken what we call the church on some pretty awful routes, and some awful things have been done in the name of Jesus. But I want you to look far past that. I want you to look back past all of those broken and awful decisions to the inventor of the church, the person who laid down his life to create it, Jesus He started it. He's going to build it on these followers, these disciples, starting with Peter and the rest, such that now we have union with Christ when we believe who He really is. We're born again into a new family, a new kingdom, a new citizenship, now a new identity as disciples and followers. Disciple, like the word apprentice, that one day you'll be like the person you're following. You'll be like the one who's teaching you. We're like apprentice Jesuses, that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to wipe away every tear and he's going to blot out every blemish and and we will be like him, the Bible tells us. So now the work that God has started for us in Jesus, he's carrying out through the life of the church, making us more and more like the image of Jesus. This is who we are. Jesus started this. So begin there. Jesus has started this, and what you believe about him will affect your relationship to the church. Period. What you believe about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is visible in your relationship to the church. Jesus started it. So if you think Jesus is just somebody you call on when when stuff gets real rough, and you're like, oh no, it hit the fan. God help me. Jesus fix all my problems guess what you'll expect of the church? And guess what you'll be really frustrated with the church about? Why don't they just jump in and solve all my problems? If you think think Jesus is just kind of like a a genie in a lamp, then then, then maybe every once in a while you'll you'll rub the lamp and hope Jesus comes through, and maybe every once in a while in a pinch you'll look at the church and go, I hope you guys can help me. I don't care about you, but, but I hope you can serve me. If you believe if you believe that Jesus is just a good teacher, then right now you're sitting taking notes fastidiously, hoping hoping that maybe some great knowledge will will kind of crack into your own intellect and and, and then you'll be brighter and you'll be the smartest guy at the cocktail party. And, and, And since Jesus was such a good teacher, you'll just be sitting waiting for the smartest church to come along. If you think Jesus is anything other than the perfect son of God made visible to us, if you think Jesus is anything other than the Lord, the Son of Man who comes on the clouds, and in his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, then you will have an imperfect and broken understanding of the church. What we believe about Jesus is visible in our relationship to the church. So what is our relationship to the church? Well, I think there's two different ways that the Bible talks about that, and the first is that our relationship is to the church globally or universally this what we'll call like the Catholicity of the church, not not capital C, Roman Catholic, but lowercase c, like universal. So the Catholicity or the universality of the church is visible now because we know that Jesus has died for the sins of all the world. Jesus has laid down his life so that those who, who might have their eyes open to it would believe and trust, repent and trust in him, find their identity in him and be a new kingdom, a new, a new movement at which every single tongue, every single tribe, every single nation at the end of this book will be bowing to King Jesus. Everywhere. One day, the church... We'll bow down to our Lord Jesus, not the genie in the lamp, not the, not the servant that we hope will do everything for us that, that just comes for every whim, but like the Lord of the universe, all of the church around the world will bow around him. And, and there will be people from Sioux Falls, there'll be people from Nepal, there'll be people from, from Bangladesh, there'll be people from Russia, there'll be people from Iowa, God help us. There'll be people from all over, everywhere, and we'll all hear this trumpet when Jesus comes back and we will, we will worship him as Lord. And because we know that, because we know that's our relationship to God, that's what we start to look like now. We love and care for one another because we have identity now in Christ that supersedes all the identity and all the loyalties and all the affinities that we have. And we have joy and communion with one another universally, Christians around the world. But there's also, in addition to the way that the Bible talks about the church universally, is the church mentioned Locally, that is there. If, if even you see this, if, if you look through the Bible, especially in the New Testament, there's going to be right after this a bunch of books written to different local churches. So the New Testament goes in this order: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, which is the story of the beginnings of the church, and then immediately after that we start something really interesting: Romans. What's that? That's a letter from the apostle Paul to what? The church at Rome. After that. Some letters to a church in Corinth, the first and second Corinthians. get the idea? and it just keeps going. and then you've got some of these letters that maybe aren't written specifically to a church like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, but then there's letters that are written to leaders in the church, like Paul's letter to Timothy, who was an elder bishop, pastor of the church in Ephesus. and then there's other letters that are written like by Peter or James or or we saw. Titus, and and they aren't necessarily written to a church, but they're written to a person, a leader, about the church, such that maybe even the letter of Titus isn't necessarily about, it's not to the church of Titus, not at all, it's to the pastor in Titus, and he says, here's what you're going to do, you're going to appoint elders in the churches, and you're going to have this kind of order, and this is going to glorify God amongst the church. And so anytime you hear the word churches in the New Testament, now we're talking about multiple churches. When we talk about the church of Jesus Christ that exists always and everywhere, it's a universal church. Christians everywhere are connected to Jesus and to one another. But then when it says church is, it's talking about individual, local congregations. Here's what I think we're supposed to do. I, I'm going to dig into this and give you five metaphors that are most dominant in the New Testament for the church. The New Testament is all about the church. It is impossible to read the New Testament without being struck at the centrality of the church in, uh, inside it. and in the gospel, Jesus Dies for his church. He charges Christians to expand his church. We just saw he promises to build his church. and In the book of Acts, the church is birthed at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit explodes into an unstoppable expansion in this powerful ministry such that churches are started and even in the midst of persecution, they're expanded and sent everywhere. All of the epistles were written to congregations or individuals about congregations. How it should function, what it should believe, how it should be led, and when we, even when we come to the book of Revelation, the first thing, the last book, the very first thing is what? An exhortation to these churches that were in existence. We see it referred to as five different things, five different important categories that the Bible uses to talk about the church. The first one is this. The church is a body. The church is a body. The church is made up of many different members that comprise of one body of Jesus Christ. This one body. Now this is one of the most common words to describe the church. Now this is really tough and this is why the word member of a church and in three weeks we want to ask people to to commit to be a member of this local church can be really difficult and I have to identify the obstacles to this. The word member here That the Bible uses is not the way that you use the word member in the same way that the way we typically talk about the church with respect to time or location like I go to church or or like there's a church building isn't what the Bible ever really intended the church to be so also when the Bible uses the word member it doesn't mean member like you think it means member as in a body part like a member of a person's body so you have to take whatever you're a member of, right, if you're a member of Sam's, member of Costco, you're member of a gym, member of a country club, member of you name it, you, you got to throw that out the window because that will hinder your ability to understand what the Bible means when it says that you and I are members, members of a body. All right, This is who we are. We are members of a body. Now, there's several places where this is found in Scripture, but I want to point to at least a couple places for, for these. And like Romans 12 says it this way: For as in one body we have many members. Stop there. Basic anatomy. All right. The average the average three uh, or like third or fourth grader knows more about human anatomy than probably the first century church did, um, at least with respect to most of the people who maybe wouldn't call themselves physicians. Uh, just like your body has parts. Agreed. Your body, your hands. Feet. We're all blessed differently in this way. Some of us are without, some of us are deprived. And this is important for us to understand this. In the same way that your body has parts, has members, and the members do not all have the same function, you would agree that we do not walk on our hands, correct? We do not put shoes on our hands, we do not put gloves on our feet. And you're like, well, that's duh, Jonathan. Just make sure we're all on the same page because Paul thinks this is a very important point to make, in the same way that we have, we have members of our body, and those members do not have the same function, they all do something differently, so we, though we are many, many parts with different functions, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We are connected as one body, and the church is spoken to as, as if it is a body with body parts. Remember what I told you, what you believe about Jesus will reveal your relationship to the church, so stop there. What is your hand's relationship to the rest of your body? What is your foot's relationship to the rest of the body? How does it work? And if you know someone, for example, I have friends that, they don't have two feet, either because they, they served our country or because of or some other health or, or some, other, some other thing that's deprived them of if I were asked ask them, what's, what's your foot's relationship to your body, they wouldn't be able to answer. Because the idea is that we are connected in some integral fashion, and that for us is a paradigm. It's emblematic of the way that the local church ought to look. We need it. So, for example, if I cut off my hand, for some of you, maybe your work is built around the work that you do with your hands. What would it look like if, if you were to lose your hand? By some tragedy, you lost function of your hand. Would you simply go, meh, no big deal, I'll carry on? Or for some of you, maybe who are in medical professions, maybe you're artists, maybe you work with your hands, all of a sudden who you are would be changed, wouldn't it? Like you might think about how how do I, can I even go on the way that I have been? Can I even continue to be the same person now that i have without this part? And when you begin to think that critically about the way that the body parts relate to the body, now you're beginning to see what Jesus is talking about. Now you're beginning to see the unit that God has created. And now I hope you'll begin to see how membership, as we typically experience, won't help you at all. It won't help you at all. For example, I'm a member at Sam's. I know you Costco people. I love you. Show me grace. Forgive me. I haven't yet been enlightened, but just... Sam's, okay? Because I like to buy a whole bunch of stuff. It's like the dollar store except everything's actually $15, right? You just walked in and, yeah, I need 20 of those. Case of 36, you bet. I'm a hoarder, forgive me, okay? And I haven't seen the light for Costco. I'm a member there. But here's something interesting about that. Like if I stopped showing up at Sam's, if I stopped buying things there, do you know how little they would actually care Okay, Costco, it's so much better than Sam's. If you stopped going this year, would they call you? Hey, man, we miss you. We're just not the same without you. I know you think that, but try it. You're a member of a gym. You pay your dues. But do you know if you stop coming, if you stop going to that gym, the people who own and run the gym don't care. Do you know all they care about? Whether or not you keep paying your dues. You can pay your dues and be a member for as long as you like. Because the truth is, they don't really need you. And the only good you bring to them is if you pay your dues. Friend, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to see how radically different the nature of the church is. We are members of this body, we are a part of this thing called the church because Jesus paid our dues. You do not have membership by your own merit. But the good news of Jesus is that he, in his merit, laid down his life to pay your dues. Such that now you are an integral, necessary part of the church. You have been equipped. You have been made specific. You were made different. You, we don't have the same function. You're good at stuff I'm bad at. I'm, I'm good at stuff you're bad at. And God, in his mercy, put us into the same room together. And our relationship to the church now is not like we pay dues and show up maybe or maybe not, but we are connected to each other in such an integral way that the body of Christ, the person and work of Jesus, will be hindered if you're missing. If you're not functioning healthily in the life of the church, Jesus won't be visible in the world. In the same way that you will not be able to function probably this week if you lost your hand and your foot. So also, the world will not see Jesus in the life of the church without you a part of it. It's that big a deal. Jesus has started this, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You're a body. You're a member of this body. You're a part of this body. You're now, you, you have fellowship with this body. You're like a, a body part. And different in any other way than you might have ever other, ever thought about with your membership anywhere else. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we who are many are one body. 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body, same like Romans, is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now equip the saints for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. Christ is now the head of the church. His body and himself is its savior, Ephesians 5.23. And now we, according to Ephesians 5.30, are members of Christ's body. Colossians 1, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of what? His body, that is, the church. You get this? We're members, but not like you think members. We're members of a body. We bring some important role. Now, this is important for those of you who have never thought about belonging to something that you actually like are necessary and needed. And I hope you're excited about this. But for some of you who are more self-righteous and you think you understand church membership, this is tricky, right? Because sometimes in the body, there's like the appendix, right? The appendix. It has no purpose. But at any given moment, it could blow up and kill us. <laughs> and some of you are like, ha, ha, And some of you are like, ooh. This is real. This is the body. All that is true about the body will be true about us. We'll have a different function. We'll have different roles, and they're extremely important. And sometimes the roles that aren't visible are the most important. And sometimes the roles that nobody sees, and in fact, sometimes nobody should see, are often the most important. So it is with us. So it is with how Christ has built us. The second metaphor that we find the most common is that the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 culminates in this way. Therefore, a man, this picture of now the gospel and marriage, shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis, and hold fast to his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's profound. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This mystery is profound. and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Revelation 21 says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Revelation 19, the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 2 Corinthians 11, now I feel the divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, this prophecy to the church, now to present you as pure before Christ. The church is not just a body in that it is unified, it is a bride in that it is valuable. It is a powerful and life-changing relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. And the way that the body demonstrates for us that the church is inti- intri- intimately and intricately connected, the picture of the bride of Christ, and these are just a few passages that I've read here, shows Jesus' love for it. So, in the same way that this has implications for our culture, okay? So, some of you, maybe you would say, like, I, I like Jesus. I like what you're saying about Jesus, but I don't like the church. Friend, you got a problem, okay? So, so I love my wife. She's awesome, okay? But if you. If you like came to me and you were like, dude, you're awesome, let's hang out. But by the way, next time, don't bring your wife. We got beef. So if you're like, Jonathan, I really like you. I like hanging out with you. But your wife, ugh. You get that we can't be friends anymore, right? Like you get, like this, this is about to end badly. Friend, how much more is Jesus offended by your awful treatment of his bride the bride he laid down his life to save and you treat it like what like it's a country club like it's the butt of some joke friend if you think i'm mad when you bad mouth my wife you haven't met the lord of the universe who comes back at the end of this book with the blood of his slain enemies on his body And the mark or tattoo, Lord of lords, written on his thigh. Don't miss this, bro. This this is the bride of Christ. The church of God is the people that God has died to purchase for himself. Do not treat this bride of Christ like a prostitute, serving your own whims. This is the bride of Christ. And the mystery of the gospel is found in it. That Jesus loves his bride. So much so that he was willing to die for it. The third metaphor we see here in the New Testament, the most predominantly present metaphor is that the church is the family of God. So we see the costliness in the bride of Christ language. We see the unity in the fam- or excuse me, in the, in the body language, and now we see the sense of intimacy in the language of the family. The first place or the best place I think I could summarize this in, is in Ephesians 2:19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is important because we're talking about refugees quite a bit in our culture right now, aren't we? And we're thinking about what you do with a refugee. Okay, well, how you answer that politically, that's good luck. This is going to be a tough conversation. But how we answer this theologically is not up for debate. You once were alien. You were strangers. You were refugees. But now what? Now what's happened? Your fellow citizens with the saints and now members of the household of God. Not just we let you into the country, but friend, you were once an alien. Now you we are brothers and sisters, a family. Matthew 12 says it this way, that stretching out his hand to his disciples, Jesus says, here are my bro- mother, here are my brothers, for whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. Over and over and over again, the language of family. Then we see the language of the church as God's house. The church is God's house. See this most powerfully in 1 Timothy. I'm writing these things to you. This is a person who's a leader in the church, Paul writing to Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the, church, of the truth. Okay, so there are rules in this house. I don't know what your family looked like, uh, but, but this is what this looked like in my family. Um maybe not as violently or angrily, but there were moments where it was very clear, especially when I was not acting like I should, one or more of my parents stood up and said, this is my house. As long as you live in my house, you will live by my rules. Right? Have you heard some derivative of this? Not in my, oh, not in this house. Not in this house. Seen this? I don't know what your family was like. Mine was a little bit dysfunctional. Forgive me. But there's a picture here, isn't there? There's a sense in which we're a part of a family now. And now that we're a part of a family, we function a certain way. We live out this connectedness like a family. The church is God's household. It's His house. This is, this is what it looks like. And, and God, in His mercy, looks at you and me, and sometimes He says, if you're going to live in my house... And by the power and grace of Jesus, you're going to live by these rules. And Jesus, because he loves the church and he refers to it as God's family, sometimes he says, not in my house. Lastly, we see that the church is a temple, a specific kind of temple in multiple different parts of the Bible. The church is a temple of God. It's built with living stones and Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in it. We see this the most clearly, I believe, in 1 Corinthians. We see this picture of the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Over and over and over again. The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, according to Ephesians 2. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, this temple, this picture, is being joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And now in him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. God dwells in this sanctuary, and that sanctuary is this people. This is what this means. I want you to get how serious this is. You cannot begin to think that you are a Christian and think lowly, think negligibly about his church. You can't think that you're a follower of Jesus and deny the importance of the church. You can't even understand the Bible unless you think about the church. God's will for the world is the church. It is not anything else. And nothing else, not a parachurch, not a 501c3, not some ministry, not anything will stand the test at the end of this. Only the gates of hell, or the gates of hell will only fail against the church. So here's what I think this means, this is what I want to call us to. I want us to think about this. If the Christ's church is to himself, calling it to himself, then this is what this looks like. Christians do not join the church. They submit to the church. You Get it? You get how Costco and Anytime Fitness or whatever, whatever Planet Fitness, you get how, get how that's different? Like you don't submit to Anytime Fitness You don't submit to Costco. They don't call you out and say, you know what? That was wrong. But the life of the church now set aside for the glory of Christ is different. It's radically different. Such that now we don't think in terms of the gospel plus community. Because this community, if it unites around anything other than the gospel, then it's not the church And if we don't submit to what God has done for us in Jesus, then we cease to be the church. This is important because some people think in terms of gospel plus community. And honestly, the community that they're a part of, it could easily exist apart from the gospel. People like each other, love each other enough, have enough in common, have enough affinity for one another, they could exist without Jesus. They could just be buddies and never need Jesus. That's not the church. The gospel reveals this community it's not the gospel plus community like they're separate this gospel is revealed in the community this reveals the power of God to unite different people under one head namely Jesus the unity that comes in this gospel is despite of all kinds of diversity and it's full of the kinds of relationships that honestly would never exist except for the truth and the power of the gospel and that's a strange compliment to pay that we glorify God with isn't it like, I can look at you and I can say, look, this is really cool. If it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't hang out with any of you. If it weren't for Jesus, we couldn't stand each other. And you can look right back at me into the glory of Christ and say, Jonathan, if it weren't for Jesus, there's no way I would hang out with you. And we are a rare breed because we actually think that's a compliment. We actually think that glorifies Christ. We actually think that that distracts us from all of our political and, and, and all these other kind of affiliations on our pet peeves, right? And we can disagree about, I don't know, vaccinating or not vaccinating. We can disagree about whether or not you should be private schooled or homeschooled or public schooled. And and we can disagree about every hot topic that's across our culture. And we can say that if it weren't for Jesus, I'd hate you because we disagree on this issue. But because of Jesus, you're my friend, you're my family, we're brother and we're sister. We celebrate this. This is radical. This is completely different than any other entity in the world. There's no comparison. And if it weren't for Jesus, this wouldn't exist. If it weren't the grace that you show me now in Jesus, the Bible tells us, you'd be throwing chairs at me. Because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone can say that Jesus is Lord, and it's only by the grace of God that you can tolerate what I say and who I am. So here's what we do. We move away from affinity-based relationships, and we move toward gospel-based relationships. Uh, My concern here, one author put it this way, isn't, isn't necessarily that we're denying that the gospel is creating community. Instead, despite our good intentions, we're actually just building communities that could thrive regardless of the gospel. Not us. This cures the a AWOL trend. This cures our culture. And our relationship to Jesus is evident now in our relationship to the church. I'll land on this. What's holding you back from submitting to the church? But what's holding you back from submitting either to Connection Church or, or or to the local church that maybe God's called you to be a part of? I use that word specifically, called out. You, you don't just join by choice. You, you join, we think, because the Holy Spirit puts you in a spot and you're called to be a part of it. What's holding you back from that? Is it me? Is it me? When you look at me, you think there's no way. This guy could lead these people to the glory of Christ. When you look at me and you see my flaws, they're pretty evident. I don't hide them well. Does it make you think, well, there's there's no way that God could use that crooked person. There's no way that God could redeem that person. Am I the thing that is holding you back? If so, you don't really believe the gospel because you don't really believe that God can change lives and that God could use people for his glory. What's holding you back? Is it you? Is it you? Or are you the thing? Do you, do you have a hard time really believe, really believing that God could change you? Do you really think that it's more fruitful to commit to other things than Christ's church? Then you don't really believe the gospel and you don't really believe that Jesus laid down his life for you and for the church. What's holding you back? Is it the Bible? Is the Bible hard to trust? Is it hard for you to believe that God reveals himself to people? Then you don't believe the gospel and you're missing the good news that God poured out his own spirit across time and space to reveal his love and glory to you. to Save you. Hear the good news. Is it the culture that's holding you back? Would you rather have your identity in the culture? Would you have your, rather have your identity in something else? Then you don't believe the gospel. You don't really hear the good news that he's invited you into something that will last for eternity. And all the old cultural trends and all the other groups will fade away, save the church. Is it other people? or other people holding you back? And you can't show grace to them? And you're demanding that they give you more attention and more care? You're demanding that they serve you? Then you don't believe the gospel. And you really think this is about you and God's grace is not in you. And so therefore, you're not able to let that grace flow to the people around you. Is it because the church hurt you? Is it because the church has let you down? I know. I've been there. You find yourself saying there's no good churches. So I would say if you don't allow Christ to heal you and flow through you to forgive them, and friend, you haven't heard the good news. And I'm here to tell you that God forgives you, forgives me, forgives them. And the evidence of his grace is now this imperfect thing where Jesus is glorified, called the church. And I declare to you a miracle and a mystery that God can redeem and use me to care for you. That you have now been granted citizenship in a kingdom that will never pass away. That you have now been adopted into a family that will last forever forever and ever that you've now been called to a purpose that will never ever fail that you have been invited into a thing that jesus has laid down his life to create hear the good news god means to use you and me as ministers of reconciliation to those who have hurt you who those who have failed you so that now his body his bride his family his house his temple is you and me oh how we would see it love it join it, submit to it, so that the world can see Jesus through it. Let's pray. God, you are gracious. Uh, you are so gracious. Would you uh, take my feeble attempt to explain your excellencies and, and make something lasting? Uh, would, you, would you allow all of the, the meaningless words to fade away and let the eternal words remain? Uh, We confess, God, that if it's up to us, we'll make everything about us, but that wouldn't be the church, that would just be a a club, that would just be a clique. We confess that it's our tendency to just want things for our own sake and our own benefit, but God, that wouldn't glorify you, and no one, no one, no one would want to see you through that. So God as you see fit would you begin to call us to repent today would you repent would you call us to repent to uh, of these false beliefs we've had about the church maybe if we we haven't really treated uh, treated the church like a, a body like we really we really feel disconnected from it would you allow us to be reconciled to one another uh, would 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 we lay down our own pride to belong would we would we see the need and sense the call to serve and to love this treasure Maybe if we've not really been valuing the church, we've been treating your bride like it's something that's not worth anything, would you begin to, to allow us to uh, repent of that? Maybe if we haven't really treated your church like a family that we love and cherish and belong to forever, uh, would you begin to allow us to repent of that? If we, we haven't really seen this as a household, as a, as a place where you now dwell amongst your people, would you begin to allow us to repent of that? We love you for this. We thank you For your mercy for us, may this stand as, may we stand as an embassy and ambassadors of your gospel to our city. May the way that we love one another and love you declare the gospel rightly forever and ever in Jesus' name. Amen.